Welcome to this afternoon's seminar, and I am proud to present Mike Pilavachi. It's such a treat and joy to have you here. It means so much to us. Thank you very much, Mike. And uh, just to introduce what we are about, uh, at least that's what I've encouraged Mike to speak a little about and see what direction it takes. But uh, Mike was in... Uh, sharing this with some leaders in the uh, UK uh, in March. And I heard Mike talking about how Jesus raised uh, leaders. And uh, to me, it was simply a, just a wonderful eye-opener, uh, another approach. And um, we, we, we have intentionally asked Mike to... Sp and then we'll see if he obeys <laughs> or... Whatever you do, it's just a blessing to us. Mike, please come up here and uh, get your mic. Give him a big hand. Is that okay? That's great. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to spend some time sitting on the stool because I'm an old man now and my legs have a lot to carry. Uh, so, so just to, to explain that. Uh, I'm going to try my best... Uh, usually when I've spoken at something and someone says to me a few months later, uh, could you repeat that, you know, do that talk? I think, oh my goodness, I can't remember what I said. So um, we may, I'm going to try and speak for a, a time, leave a bit of time before the hour's up. And if I haven't covered the stuff, uh, Fleming is going to come and in encourage us and uh, ask the right questions or say it. Um, I want to begin uh, with a true story. Uh, in 1955, uh, in the state of Kansas in America, there was a lady called Elizabeth Henson. And uh, Elizabeth Henson was um, clearing out her wardrobe. And she found uh, a, a, a horrible old green coat that was made of bright, bright green and it was velvet and it was stained, and it was threadbare, and uh, it was old-fashioned, and it was horrible. And she thought, why have I kept this? I'm going to throw this away. And as she went to throw it away, her son said, are you throwing that coat away, Mum?" She said, yes. He said, can I have it? She said, what do you want with this? This is useless. This is worthless. And he said, let me have it. And so she did. He took it to his room. He took some scissors. He cut it up. He then sewed it back together and he took a table tennis ball and he cut it in two and sewed the two halves of the table tennis ball onto this old green coat. I'm here to tell you that that useless, worthless green coat ended up winning an Oscar. Absolutely true. It had a hit record that was number one all over the world. It was the star of a TV series that lasted for tens of years. More than anything else, that horrible old worthless green coat had a celebrity love affair with the most beautiful pig on the planet. In the hands of Elizabeth Henson's son, Jim, that useless, worthless green coat became Kermit the Frog. Absolutely true story. And it happened because Jim Henson did not see only what it was. 
he saw what it could be. He saw the potential. And, and he lovingly recreated it uh, so that it, it could do things that you would, uh, an old green coat could never dream of. Put that on the back burner for a while. We may come back to it in a while. Um, as um, a, a church, I've been a church pastor since the days of Noah. And uh, as a church pastor, I've regularly gone to church pastors' conferences. And uh, I, I've learned the, um, what happens at these. And what happens is the same at every church leaders' conference. At some stage, they bring on for the keynote talk a church leader of a big, successful, wonderful megachurch. And I have no problem with big, successful, wonderful megachurches. We need them, okay? I have no, that's, this is not a, a dig. Um, and, but, and he would say, uh, and the talk would go something like this. Uh, three months ago, there were 47 people in our church. Now, there are 3.2 million. And we have planted satellite congregations on Mars and Venus. And our budget is now bigger than the state of Texas. You too could have a church as big and successful as mine if you follow these three principles, these four practices, these five ways. And I would furiously write notes. And then I would go home and I would say to my poor, poor, unsuspecting, innocent church, we're changing everything. And we changed everything. Then I'd go to the next church leaders conference and another one would get wheeled in. And he would say the same thing, except it was three different principles, four different practices, five different ways. And I would come back to my ch- poor church, and they turn everything around. Ag- we turn everything around again, and I just wore them out. And after a while, when I went to a church leaders conference, people in my church would pray against against what happened, that it wouldn't come back, that somehow the Lord would deliver us. And then a while ago. I went to one church leaders conference and the leader of a big, wealthy, successful megachurch stood up and he said this, if you want to grow a big church, if you want to grow a successful church, you've got to go out and you've got to look for the best of the best, the most talented, the most gifted men and women. And when you find them, you buy them, spend what Ever you need to spend. Spend whatever you need to spend. Give them whatever salary they need and buy them. And when you have the best of the best, that is how you will grow your church and be successful. And I thought, that is brilliant. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Because in my church, I've got rubbish on the staff. And then I suddenly thought, Oh no, I haven't got any money to buy the best of the best. And then I suddenly thought, poor Jesus, poor, poor Jesus. He didn't get to go to church leaders' conferences and get given great advice like that. Poor Jesus. When in those days the top rabbis needed to recruit new disciples, they would all go to the top rabbinical universities. You know, the, the Yales, the Harvards, 
the Oxfords, the Cambridge, the Birmingham universities of their day. And they would look for the best of the best and they would say, you, follow me. You, follow me. You, follow me. All the top rabbis did that except one. Rabbi Jesus, he went to the Sea of Galilee and he picked 12 morons. I mean, he picked 12 failures. Just stop and think for a moment. There was Peter. Whenever he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. He could never quite get it right. He was always too impulsive. And he was always getting the wrong end of the stick. Do you have that in, this, in our, our phrase? It's the wrong end of the stick. And, and do you know, there was one time, it's recorded, that Peter got a question right. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And somehow, by accident, Pete got the right answer. And, and Jesus was so excited. You could tell he was excited. He said, you are Rocky. <laughs> and on you, I'm going to build my church. And I imagine uh, Peter turned around to the other disciples and he said, did you hear that? I'm Rocky. I'm Rocky. Do you know what the next thing that happened was? You read the scripture. Then Jesus tells them how he's got to die a horrific death on the cross. And Peter says, no, don't do that. Don't want you to do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter was Rocky for a few minutes before he became Satan. Then there was Simon who was a zealot. You know, do you know what zealots were? They were freedom fighters. They fought against the occupying Roman army for freedom for their own people. In other words, he was a terrorist. Then there was Matthew who was a tax collector. That wasn't a civil service. He was a traitor to his own people. Can you imagine the conversations between Simon, the freedom fighter terrorist, and Matthew, the tax collector traitor, late at night after Jesus went to bed? Huh? And, and then there was James and John, whose nickname was Sons of Thunder. Not because they had digestive problems, but almost certainly because they had bad tempers. They were known as the bad-tempered ones. Not forgetting Thomas, who wouldn't believe a word anyone ever said. Who was the manic depressive of the group, whose, whose glass was always half-empty. Oh, it's all gone wrong again. Oh, I knew it would. Oh, we may as well go and die with him. I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead, not even if I put my finger there or my fist up there. No, no, it never happens like that. No, it's all gone wrong. Oh, I don't like this. I mean, there's one in every church, isn't there? That, isn't there? They drain the life out of you. And, you know, well, anyway, I won't go into that, but I'll, I'll come back to it later. But, but that was Jesus' raw material. They, they, were, they weren't the best of the best. You could make an argument that they might have been the worst of the worst. Do you know what? Would you have them in your church? I wouldn't have them in mine. Jesus chose them. He chose them. And for three and a half years, he loved them. He challenged them. He encouraged them. He rebuked them. He, he, um, he taught them again and again and again and again. He forgave them. And above all, he was completely committed to them.
And after three and a half years, they changed the world. They changed the world. The useless, worthless green coat became Kermit the Frog. That's, my friend, how it works. And do and, you know, I, I think, you know, lots of times when we go to these leaders' meetings, they teach you all these business principles for how to lead a strategically effective and administratively competent church. And I think some of those are not bad, you know? Better to lead a church well than badly. Better to have good plans than no plans. You know, better to have a plan. <laughs> you know, better not to be... You know, that's, that's not bad. But do you know what, guys? Church is not a business. Church is a family. The biblical definition of church It's a family. It's a family. And let me tell you, in a business, you hire and fire employees. In a family, you raise up sons and daughters. And there is a huge difference. Can you imagine if you had in a family, um, the the father asks the seven-year-old to load the dishwasher. And the seven-year-old doesn't do it right. Do you, does the, do, you, do you call the seven-year-old in to come, come, in, come into my study, t- take a seat. Um, let's review your performance. It wasn't, it wasn't really up to the standards we need or expect. We're going to have to let you go. And we're going to bring in a seven-year-old from across the road who is better at loading dishwashers. Do you do that if you're a parent? No, you don't. What you do is you load the dishwasher with your seven-year-old day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, if necessary, year in, year out, because you love your child, because you love your child and you are totally committed to your child and your child is not an object that you use. Your child is a person whom you love. And that's how it's meant to work in the church of Jesus Christ. The church is a family. We, we, we're in a, a relationship with him and with one another. And the reason for that is because God himself is family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity, relationship. And we together reflect him. Do you know what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, he said you have 10,000 teachers but you do not have many fathers. And do you know what happens around teachers? Around teachers, people learn things. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But do you know what happens around mothers and fathers? Around mothers and fathers, people grow up. And we don't need simply better educated Christians. We need grown-ups. We need people who grow up and know how to take responsibility, and to be courageous, and to go on a journey. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? Well, first of all, every way he did it was in love. And do you know what love love means? Christian love, agape love. It means time. It means time. Jesus, Jesus walked the hills and the deserts of Judea with them for three and a half years. They hung out together. They cooked meals together. I love it that the, 
that the, one of the first things Jesus did after he rose from the dead is he cooked breakfast for his disciples. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and it was time. It's, it's heart. You know, you've you, you got to love them. If you don't love them, you won't, be, you won't stay the course. You know, and if you don't love, ask God to give you a love. Ask God to pour his love into your heart. Ask God to show you what he sees. And it, 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 it's money. It's being generosity money. I mean with your possessions. I mean with what you have. It's your time, your money, uh, your, your heart, your commitment, your, your encouragement. Your encouragement. Do you have any idea what a difference encouragement makes? It makes all the difference. And I'm not talking about, about um, making people f- saying lies. I'm not talking, I'm talking about seeing, seeing the good in someone, seeing the potential and, and encouraging them and, 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 and calling forth from them what they can be. Just one example, and then I'm going to go back to, to Jesus. You know, when Paul gave, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, no, no Christian would touch him. The leaders in Jerusalem wouldn't go near him because of his reputation. So Barney, Barnabas, went and found him. And he took Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem, to the church leaders. And he said, you won't have him anywhere near you because he's got such a terrible reputation. He murders Christians. He puts them in prison. Da, da, da. Well, you know me. And you know my reputation. I'm the guy that sells fields and gives money to the poor. I've got a good reputation with you, and I am putting my reputation on the line for him. All right? Hear him because of what you know about me. And then Paul gave his testimony, and they accepted him. Then later on, Barnabas went back to Jerusalem, found Paul, and he took him to Antioch, and he spent, I think it was three years with him. And I, I don't know what they did, but I imagine they did Bible study together. And they prayed together. And I imagine there were times when Barney probably did a little bit of counseling. You know, now, Paul, um, this week we're going to look at your ferocious temper. And we're going just, to just, let's just pray about it. And let's just, where does that come from, Paul, where you lose it? Because sometimes it causes a bit of damage. Do you know that? I bet he did that. And then one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to them in the church in Antioch, set apart Paul and Barnabas to go on a missionary journey. And do you know what I love about that? It became Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas didn't hold on. He didn't hold on to his leadership. He, he loved seeing Paul uh, just flourish and he was there supporting Paul. He played second violin in the orchestra, did Barnabas. Second fiddle. Everyone wants to play first violin. But God bless the second violins in the orchestra of the church. Those who are willing to add texture, but not necessarily be noticed. Yeah, 
And so, and then there came a point where uh, John Mark, who was a young man who was with them, he got scared and he ran away. And then after a while, before another missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's, let's take John Mark with us. And it says in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke says, they had a big argument and uh, they, they parted ways. Now, I know this is reading into the text, but hear me out. This is my reading. Um, I think Barnabas was probably in the right because later on, Paul says, I can't remember in which of his letters he says, uh, if John Mark comes to you, greet him as a brother. He is, he is highly regarded amongst the leaders of the church. Something changed. And I wonder if their disagreement was this. Paul, I think we can, dictate, we can detect from his letters, was a little bit of a perfectionist at times, don't you think? He was a little bit of a, you know, I mean, my fear when I see Paul is he'll say, how many churches have you planted? <laughs> and whatever I say, he'll say, is that all? You know, I don't think it is like that. But, but Paul was, you know, he had an element. And I wonder if when Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. And Paul said, no, he let us down once before. He messed up. He ran away once before. No. And Barnabas, I think, would have said, Paul, are we not going to give him a second chance? Are we not going to do that for him? When no one wanted to know you, I came and found you. And I gave you a second chance. And I put my reputation on the line. And I spoke for you. And I invested in you. Can you imagine if I didn't give you a second chance because you'd messed up once? Aren't we going to give John Mark a second chance? I think John Mark's second chance came, but it came later. So, how did Jesus do it? Because Barnabas did a great job, but Jesus is the perfect one at this. He called them to himself. And, you know, and they were a bunch of failures. They, you know, they, were, they, they really were. And he said, come, follow me. Come, follow me. The first thing was, there is a rabbi who wants me to... I'm going to be the disciple to a rabbi. And I was a fisherman. I'm going to be a disciple to a rabbi. And I was a tax collector traitor. And he has time for me. There's, there's only 12 of us. So I get to spend a lot of time with him. I get to ask him questions late at night. He has one-on-ones with me. And then, at the beginning, Jesus did miracles and they watched. Jesus taught and they listened. And then after a while, watch this, Jesus did miracles with them. He didn't just do miracles at them or that they watched. For example, most modern theologians have, have missed this. It has been specially revealed to me. Uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, did you know, did you know that he only did one-third of that miracle? He, who do you think rolled the stone away? It was the disciples. Who do you think took Lazarus' grave clothes off? It was the disciples. Jesus' contribution was Lazarus come forth. Can you imagine afterwards the disciples running up to Jesus? Jesus, we did a great job together, didn't we? 
didn't we? We've raised Lazarus from the dead. Did you see, Jesus, the way we rolled that giant stone away? Did you see Andrew's biceps? Did you see the way it was like a pebble to us? And Jesus, be honest now, be honest. Have you ever, ever seen in your life grave clothes taken off a body as efficiently and quickly and neatly as that? By the way, Jesus, thank you for your little contribution. The Lazarus come forth bit, that was pretty good as well. But what didn't we do well? Do you see? He did it with them. Well, and then, <laughs> that was nearly a need for resurrection again. I think I'll, I think I'll go back to the seat. <laughs> um, I think I'll go back to the seat. And then, you know, just, just the feeding of the 5,000. My, fav- my favorite ever miracle. The best miracle Jesus ever performed. Better, in my opinion, than raising people from the dead. Because it involved food in vast quantities. And, and you know, there, there, was, there was Jesus. Just, just think of it like this. If, if you put the different versions together, uh, they, 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 were, um, uh, they, were, they just finished a ministry trip. And they were going over to the, the, across the Sea of Galilee. And I think the disciples were thinking, oh, it's been exhausting the last few weeks. We're going to have a couple of days at the Sea of Galilee Resort, just us and Jesus. We'll play a bit of golf. We'll do some sunbathing. Oh, we just want a rest. And then when they arrive at the Sea of Galilee Resort, to their horror, 5,000 men have been on a fun run all the way around the side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're waiting for them. And the disciples are like, oh, no. Oh, no. There's, there's a whole crowd. What are we going to do? Well, let's tell Jesus it's our day off. Let's tell Jesus to tell him to go. We're tired. It's our day off. Don't be silly. You know what's going to happen if we tell Jesus, let's tell them to go. We're tired. He'll say something like, my father is always at work and so am I. No, 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 no. No, we got, we got to get Jesus on his weak point. What's his weak point? compassion I know what we'll do so a little delegation went up to Jesus and they said oh Jesus we've seen the crowd our hearts of compassion go out to them they are like lost like sheep without a shepherd there is nothing we want more than to spend the next four days ministering to them but we've just had a thought Jesus oh they will get hungry soon and McDonald's is closed What are we going to do? We love them so much. We don't want them to be hungry. Sad as it is, we think for their sake, it's best that you send them home. (laughs) I love the day. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, you feed them. And can you imagine? They go back to the others. What did he say? Well, it was strange. He said, we've got to feed them. We've got to feed them. Did you tell him that there's 5,000 men? let alone women and children, we told him. Did you tell him McDonald's is closed? We told him McDonald's is closed. Nine months' wages wouldn't feed this, not even if McDonald's was open. Well, he said, we've got to feed them. Well, we've got to tell him we can't. I'm not telling him. I'm not telling him. And I think Pete looked at his little brother, Andy, and he said, Andy, you're the youngest. You tell him. And Andy went off in a huff. It's not fair. It's always me that's got to tell him. It's always me because I'm the youngest. It's not fair. And then as he goes off in his huff, moaning, 
he suddenly sees a little boy and he says, hello, little boy. (laughs) And the little boy says, hello, because his voice hasn't broken yet. And Andy says, what have you got in your basket? Is that a picnic? And the little boy says, yes. Did your mummy make that for you? Yes. What's in the picnic? Five sandwiches and two sardines. Five sandwiches and two sardines? Yes. Little boy? Yes. Are you going to eat that all on your own? Yes. Little boy? Yes. What's that over there? (laughs) Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say it. But I am almost 100% sure Andy stole that little boy's picnic. And then when they all gathered back with Jesus, Jesus said, okay, what have you got? And 11 disciples looked at their sandals, nothing. And then Andy says, I've got something. And the others look at him. And then he gives Jesus this little boy's picnic. And the others are saying, you idiot. How are we going to feed 5,000 men with a little boy's picnic? Uh-uh, uh-uh. And then Jesus shocks them and says, that'll do. We can do with that. Now, the next bit, again, most other top theologians don't quite understand. But for some reason, the disciples all wandered around the Judean countryside with a basket each. For there were indeed 12 baskets. Now, I have had special revelation. I think it was their laundry baskets. Because the disciples believed in cleanliness because cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and, and then Jesus says, okay, I said you're going to feed them. I'm going to bless this. I'm going to pray over it. And I'm going to put a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish in each of your baskets. They all got a twelfth of a little boy's picnic. And he said, off you go. Can you imagine, Peter? Ah, uh, hello there. Uh, could you get into a line of 50 first time, please? First line of 50. Would some of you like to go into Andrew's line? No. Okay. Oh, this is going to go so badly wrong. <laughs> Look, there's, there's nothing there. What are we going to do? We're going to get killed. They're going to beat us up. Okay, um, who's first? Hello. Oh, my, you're a big shepherd, aren't you? <laughs> What would you like, a bit of bread or a little bit of fish? A bit of both. Well, we have a problem with both. You don't care, do you? Okay, here's a little bit of bread, here's a little bit of fish. What do you mean you want more? There isn't any more. Look, there's nothing. Oh, there's a bit more bread. But we're out of fish. Fish is off today. Look, there's nothing. Oh, there's a bit more fish. Next. Hello. (laughs) Hello. There's some bread. There's some fish. There's more bread. There's more fish. Next. Bread, fish, ketchup, ketchup. (laughs) Jesus did the miracle in the hands of his disciples. He did it with them. He didn't do it at them. He did it with them. And do you know there was the time when they were away from Jesus and, and they, they encountered a guy who was demonized and they tried to cast the demon out and the demon wouldn't go and Jesus had to turn up and cast the demon out and they said to him afterwards, what went wrong, Jesus? And, and Jesus said, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. 
Do you think when Jesus said that, they remembered it? Do you think they remembered it better than if they'd been on a seminar on casting out demons and point four was this kind comes out by prayer and fasting? Peter had the black eye. I think they wouldn't. Next time we see one of those, prayer and fasting, remember that. We won't forget prayer and fasting. Then there was another time. They go out. He sends them out in pairs to heal the sick, preach the gospel, cast out demons, raise the dead. And they have a good time. And they come back. And they're full of it. Jesus, you should have been there on our ministry trip. You should have come along. You'd have learned something. Even the demons flee when we tell them in your name. <laughs> and, and Jesus says to them, well done, guys. Well, what he actually says is I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky, which means well done, guys. You remembered the prayer and fasting bit. We remembered the prayer and fasting bit. Here's the next lesson. Now, rejoice not that the demons flee, but that your names are written in the book of life. You see, he taught them as they went. First lesson, prayer and fasting. Got it. Second lesson, this is what you rejoice over. This is what's important. This is what really matters. He took them on a journey. He took them on a journey, and it was a journey of love. Even at the end, you know, he says, you're, you're, you're all going to run away. And Pete says, I won't run away. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And there's Peter after Jesus is arrested in the, in the garden of the high priest. And the servant girl says, aren't you one of his disciples? No. They ask him again, the soldiers, are you sure you're not one of his disciples? No. You've got an accent from Galilee. Are you sure? And it says the third time, Peter called down curses from heaven upon himself. What that almost certainly means is this. I've told you once, I don't know him. I've told you twice, I've never met him. Now watch my lips. I don't know who he is, and if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. It wasn't a little white lie. And then the cock crowed, and Peter was distraught. He wept bitterly. The next time he sees Jesus, it's at the resurrection breakfast. And after Jesus cooks his betrayer, breakfast. Would you like more eggs, Pete? After he does that, he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, if it was me, I would have said, Pete, are you going to betray me again? Are you going to let me down again? Are you going to mess it up again, Pete? Uh, uh, uh. And Pete wouldn't have been able to answer because he didn't know. Jesus didn't ask that. He said, Pete, do you love me? Yeah. I don't know if I won't mess up again. I don't know if I won't let you down again. But I do know, I do know I love you. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. I reinstate you. I put you back. Pete, do you love me? You, you know I love you. 
feed my sheep. Pete, do you love me? You know everything, Jesus. You know I'm weak and I'm broken and I'm messed up, but you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times he denied him. So Jesus, three times he reaffirms him. Three times he lets Pete, three times he lets Pete know that he reinstates him completely and he trusts him. He trusts him with the most precious thing he has, his sheep, his sheep. Last one with Jesus. You know, Thomas, I said we might come back to him. This I find gorgeous. I didn't realize this until I was preparing it for Easter Sunday talk. You know how sometimes you read the same scripture again and again and again, and then you read it one more time, and it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared on that day to Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to all the disciples, except Tom, who was out that day. So he does two appearances in the first day. Tom comes back in the evening. They say, Thomas, Jesus is risen from the dead. And Thomas says, no, he isn't. And they say, we saw him. We saw him. He stood among us. No, he didn't. And then they're arguing with Tom. And Tom says, I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my finger here and my fist up here. He is not risen from the dead. Where is he then? Where is he? Hmm? He's not here, is he? He's not here. Monday. Tom. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's not here. How funny is that? Tuesday. Still no Jesus risen from the dead? We're still saying we saw him? I wonder what's happened to him. Maybe he's had an accident. Wednesday. Still no Jesus? Fancy. Mary Magdalene saw him and you saw him all on the same day? He must be on holiday. By Friday... I think the other disciples were starting to think, did we really see him? Maybe Thomas is right. And Thomas is saying to them, you know what this is called? I did psychology, you know. This is called group hallucination. You all want to believe it so much that you've all persuaded yourselves that you've seen him. Jesus waits a whole week. The following Sunday, he appears to Thomas in front of them. Can you imagine it? Hello, Tom. (laughs) Come here. Go on, put your finger here. Put your fist here. Stop doubting and believe. Why did Jesus wait a whole week? He could have put Tom out of his misery on Monday morning, on Sunday night. I think he waited a whole week so that Tom could get all his doubts out of his system, so Tom could display them all. And then Jesus appears. And do you know what is amazing that I never saw? Thomas falls down on his feet and he says, My Lord and my God. Do you know that Thomas is the only one in the whole of Scripture, the only person who made the confession directly that Jesus is God? The only, I know there's the beginning of John, but that was the writer of John that said it. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas is the only person recorded. The big doubter, the big doubter, 
the one who wouldn't believe anything, was given by Jesus the honor of being the only person to say, you are God. How could Jesus do that? Because he is flipping magnificent. Because he is flipping magnificent. Because he takes useless, worthless, velvet green coats and he turns them into Kermit the Frog. And he does it over a season. He, didn't, he wasn't with the disciples for three hours. He wasn't with the disciples for the three days. He was with them for three and a half years. And he invested himself in them. He invested himself in them. And the reason I know this is true, and the reason I know this works, is because, frankly, folks, I'll be honest, this was done to me. Now, I haven't won an Oscar, and I'm not particularly great, but you should have seen me what I was. I, my background was very broken, um, very, very broken. My childhood was horrible. And um, I, I haven't got time to tell you the whole story, and I don't particularly want to. But um, my dad was very violent, and he would, he, would, he would chase me down the road with a stick, hitting me when I was little. And it was humiliating, and people, would, people at my school would watch. Uh, when I started school, I couldn't speak any English because my parents were um, immigrants to England from Cyprus, and it didn't occur to them to teach me English. And I always felt the outsider. And, um, and I, I spent one and a half years without speaking. Uh, between 12 and 13, I could hardly speak to anybody except yes and no. And then I met Jesus. And uh, he started to transform my life. But even in my 20s, I was broken. I was so broken, I messed up every relationship I had. Uh, I couldn't, I, I would get possessive and, and I, just, I just didn't know how to do relationships. I remember thinking, I'm better off on my own. I'm better off on my own. And there was this old Simon and Garfunkel song. I don't know if any of you, you know, I am a rock, I am an island. I thought it was written for me. Um, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island. Um, um, I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. And they finish that song with, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And I thought they wrote it for me. And of course, that last line is rubbish. Rocks do feel pain, and islands do cry when they're human beings. And then, when I was 27 years old, I heard that there was this church where they prayed for people, and people got healed. And I was desperate, because I just didn't have any hope for the future. And I turned up at this church, and for some reason, the pastor of this church and his wife, their names are David and Mary Pitches, they took me in, and they loved me. And David and Mary, I don't know, if, do you know Debbie Wright? She and her husband, John, lead the vineyard movement in the UK. Well, it's Debbie's mum and dad. And, um, you know, I, Debbie and I say we're, we're honorary brother and sister. And they loved me. And I couldn't understand why. Because I was, when I arrived at the church, everyone would jokes that I was so shy, I wouldn't speak to anyone. I was so broken. And you know what? They, they took me in 
Mary prayed with me every Friday for three years. Uh, David and Mary, they, they showed me how I could get into their house at any time of day or night through the garage. If I went through the garage, the side door to the kitchen through the garage was always unlocked. So there was a whole year I arrived uninvited nearly every morning and had breakfast with them. I'd walk in at 7 o'clock and I'd shout, hello, and they, I'd hear them upstairs and they'd say, hello, hello, and Mary would shout, put the kettle on, we're coming down, and I'd sit having breakfast with them. The family I never had, the parents I never had, and then David one day asked me if I would give up my job as an accountant and be the youth pastor of the church. I could not believe it, and I did. And I got things wrong, and I got things right. And when I got things right, he encouraged me, and he affirmed me. When I got things wrong, one-on-one, he told me where I could have gone right, but he always defended me in front of others. And the number of times he said to me, Mike, if anyone um, has a problem with anything you're doing, you just tell them, David told me to do that. Tell them to come to me. Tell them to come to me. And do you know, David is now 91 years old, and Mary is a little bit younger, but I'm not allowed to say her age. And, um, and do you know, um, they have prayed for me. They have prayed for me every day for over 30 years. And I saw them just before I went to South Africa. Three weeks ago, I went, and I'm going to see them next week. And at the end, they said, they said what they've always said for 30 years. David said before I went, he said, Mike, we love you. We're proud of you. You know, we pray for you every day. We love you. We're so proud of you. And now I look back. I see David had me in meetings I should never have been in. I never understood why I was there. And it was to teach me. And in conversation over meals, he would take me with him when he went to speak somewhere. And afterwards, I would say, why did you do that? And what about this? And we would talk about it together. And he would ask my opinion. And he gave me confidence. He encouraged me. Do you know in English, that word encourage, it's to give courage, to encourage someone. That's what it is. And ever since, and I finish with this because I've gone on, I'm so sorry. We've got a few minutes left. <laughs> Don't, because I could go another hour. Um, no, <laughs> you know, let me, let me just say, ever since, I've wanted to do that with others. Ever since, the greatest joy in my life is investing. That's why everywhere I go, I take interns with me. Everywhere I go, I want to cheer them on. I want to invest in them. And I, I want to give to them. And, and, you know, there's been over the years, there are folk who, I won't give you names because it doesn't really matter. It's, it's not about the ones that are famous. It's about all of them. There, there's so many now are, are leading churches around the world. So many are youth leaders, worship leaders. So many are doing wonderful things. And there's one of them who was my intern when he was 18 years old, and it was um, 18, it was it was about 18, yeah, it was 18 years ago actually, and uh, he was my intern. He went round the world with me. His name is Andy Croft, and uh, um, he knew nothing. 
I mean, it was awful. He would flirt. Every country we went to, he would flirt with a girl. And, you know, and I'd have to drag him away and, you know, and tell him and everything. And, you know, um, 36 years later, no, sorry, 36. He's 36 now. He's just had his 36th birthday. 18 years later, he and I jointly lead the church. We jointly lead. We're joint senior pastors. And there's a battle going on as to who's the leader. And he's got sharp elbows, and he's trying to take over from me, but I've been fighting back. And, and you know what? I led the church on my own. I led the church on my own for 23, 24 years. And then the trustees of the church felt that I couldn't lead it on my own, and they appointed this child to co-lead with me, this fetus to, to co-lead with me. And so now, and do you know what the problem is? He, his, he, he, he teaches much better than me. When he teaches, they all clap. When I teach, they fall asleep. He has points. You know, I am a, I start somewhere and I have no idea where I'm going to land, as you've probably noticed. And Andy, after, after my talks, he, he now corrects me. <laughs> And he says, Mike, it was, a, it, was a, it was all over the place, wasn't it? It was a chain, train of consciousness. It was, where, where was it? Uh, you just need to be clear. You need to be clear. And I want to headbutt him. But I think about it, and I think he's right. He's right. And you know, we've told all the staff of the church, in the next months I'm stepping back because he's ready to lead on his own. And he's going to be a fabulous leader of our church. He was already doing it. But in January, I'm going to be associate pastor while I've still got energy to support him. And then, uh, you know, I'll step back more. And I want to be the old man who sits at the back moaning. Well, it wasn't like that in my day. Mm. Oh, and we didn't used to do that. I can't wait. And I'm, going to enjoy, and I'm going to enjoy it so much. And I've already told him that. But, you know... Here's where I'll end. You know, I was best man at Andy's wedding to Beth. Their kids are like my kids. I love them. And, and just on Saturday morning, their two eldest, who's seven and five, one Saturday morning about a month, they come and spend the morning with me. And I buy lots of chocolates. And we have a lot of fun and, and, and all of that. And every day when I'm away, I get a, a, a little text or video or photo of the family, and it keeps me going. This morning, Beth sent me a video of Caleb, um, who's, who's three years old, pretending to drive my car, and uh, um, it's just wonderful. And do you know, here's the best bit. I'm 64 now. I'll be 65 next March. And um, I, I never got married in the end. I never had children. Um, but I've had the joy of being best man at 19 weddings. And nearly all of them were in my youth group and asked me if I'd be best man at their wedding. I even got to be father of the bride once. This girl, Sarah, when she was 21, she came to see me and she said, Dave's asked me to marry him. And I've said, yes, will you be my dad on my wedding day? And I said, Sarah, are you serious? 
and Sarah's dad committed suicide when she was two years old. And she said, you've forgotten what I said to you when I was 13. I said, what was that? She said, when I was 13, I said to you, if I ever get married, I want you to be my dad on my wedding day because you're the nearest thing I've ever had to a dad. That day was one of the best of my life, walking her down the aisle, sitting with her in the car as we arrived at the church and holding her hand and praying for her before I took her to meet her husband. There is such joy in doing it Jesus' way. Will there be failures? Jesus had Judas. Why shouldn't we? But he loved Judas to the end. So must we. But for every Judas, there'll be a whole bunch of others. There'll be a whole bunch of others. And when you get old, you've got, you got spiritual children. And you know what? I sometimes sit there and I, I look on my Instagram or my Facebook or the photos and I just, look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. They're changing the world. And all it is, is doing it Jesus' way. Love them to death. Encourage them. Give them space. Let them fail. Let them fail. Failure doesn't kill you. Failure grows you. And even now, even now, one of my ex... I'll finish with this, I promise. One of my ex-interns from um, three years ago, he's now youth pastor of a church in Perth. And he just sent me, he preached his first sermon at the church in, um, uh, in the adult service. And he sent me the video and to ask me what I thought. And uh, I, I sent back, I said, I've got a few suggestions, but y- y- you were great. You did this well, you did this well, you did this well. I'm so proud of you. And he just texted back about three hours ago. And he said, that means the world to me. I can't wait to hear how you think I could do better. That's how it works. There's no greater joy. And we need to raise up the next generation. Give it away. It's a relay race. Don't hold on to the baton. Be a spiritual dad. Be a spiritual mum. And you get to be grandparents. And you can do all the fun things. And they do all the messy stuff. (laughs) Lord Jesus, I thank you that you didn't just teach us, you showed us. You showed us how to do it. And Jesus, I ask that you would give us all grace, Lord. Give us all grace that we would... We would sacrifice our time, our, our belongings, our money, our hearts, our encouragement, so that others might be all that you want them to be. I pray, Lord, that through these, your people, over the coming years, you would raise up many Kermits to do amazing things that we could only dream about. Amen. Amen.
while Mike was sp- is uh, speaking, I get a clear sense that God is here with uh, grace, peace, and clarity. And I think it's an opportunity uh, for some of us to be prayed for. And uh, I'd especially address uh, leaders in here that are in need of grace, peace, and clarity to be prayed for because I think God is here and uh, there is much encouragement for you to have. So if you're in a situation like that, uh, would you and want to be prayed for, could we end with doing that and the rest of you can... Either either you could uh, support in prayer or you could go and have a cup of coffee and take time off. But if you're in a situation like that, I'd like you to be prayed for. Thank you, Mike. It was brilliant, fantastic. So, grace, peace, clarity. Would you please stand? Take a stand. Yes. And I know it's afternoon and the heat is coming, but God can do amazing things. So, uh, take a look around and... uh, People are standing here has much online in their lives, so it's 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 a, a precious moment. So would some of you come and lay hands on them? And if you in any way feel that there's a scripture uh, that comes to your mind, a picture, or just a thought, it would be very very helpful if you have the freedom to share it with them. And I'm so convinced that you can just. Share from, you know, freely from your heart, and they are uh, able to uh, receive that in the very best way. So, you who are praying, I'd encourage you to take a little risk, and if you've got any impression, just share it with them. And actually, this is how we will end this meeting. So, so there's a uh, there's a there's freedom to, to leave if you want to do otherwise. But uh, and the rest of you who are already pl- praying, uh, feel free to do so.